Welcome to the Sanctum. Here we study the mysteries of Dungeon Crawl Classics and Appendix N. With your keepers of mysteries, Jen Brinkman, Mark Bruner, Bob Brinkman. Enter the Sanctum Socorro and be inspired. Welcome to the Sanctum Secorum podcast, where we plumb the depths of Appendix N as it pertains to the Dungeon Crawl Classics role-playing game. We, your Keepers of Mysteries, are here to help you serve these literary offerings at your DCC RPG table. I'm Keeper Jen, and with me are Keeper Mark. Hello, everyone. And Keeper Bob. Good evening. And tonight, we take our first foray into the world of Amber with Roger Zelazny's Nine Princes in Amber. Tell us about it, Bob! Carl Corey wakes in a medical clinic with little to no knowledge of who he is or how he got there. He suspects he's being overmedicated, so he overpowers the nurse and doctor and escapes his room. He finds the manager of the clinic and learns that he was recovering from a car accident in a private clinic paid for by his sister, Evelyn Flamel. He flees and heads to her house. She addresses him as Corwin and calls herself Flora. Hiding his lack of memory, he convinces her to let him stay. In Flora's library, he locates a set of customized tarot cards, the Trumps, whose major arcana are replaced with images which he recognizes as his family. As he looks over the cards, he remembers all of his brothers. Sneaky Random, Julian the Hunter, well-built Gerard, arrogant Eric, himself Benedict, the master tactician and swordsman, Sinister Kane, Scheming Blies, and the mysterious Brand. He also views his four sisters, Flora, who offered him sanctuary, Deirdre, who was dear to him, Reserved Luella, and Fiona, whom Corwin hated. Carl Corey investigates, discovering the truth piece by piece. He is really Prince Corwin of Amber, the one true world of which our Earth is just a shadow. He is one of nine men who might rule Amber if he can fight his way past the armies of his older brother, Eric. Well said. I'll just start out by saying that this is unabashedly one of my favorites of the genres. It has a number of flaws, which I am sure we'll dwell deep into. But I don't know. It's just one of these stories that has always captivated me, and I've read it many, many times. The first series in the Amber Chronicles is... I think a really nice epic sort of storytelling that pulls together a lot of pieces that Zelazny was working with from other authors, from his own works, but it feels unique. And I don't really recommend or have a lot of favoritism for the last five books in the series, but this is really one of the all-time greats in my opinion. But that being said, I'm sure there are some alternative views of that maybe (laughs) maybe yes i've got a question mark when you say the last five are you talking about the second group of stories the merlin tales because then there's four more that come after that that were written by john betancourt 
yeah, the Merlin Tales, they are a little bit too derivative of the original works. They are not as captivating. And just from a storytelling element, they're not as neatly tied together. So it, it, those specifically, but interesting. You know, it may be because I, I came upon those later in my life after having read these and, and sort of set up the end of the series where the first five has a very rich conclusion in my mind. And just to kind of open that box up again, it seemed a little bit, I, I mean, it's a little bit demeaning of the previous work in some ways um, is how I kind of felt about it when I approached it. Okay, I wasn't sure because it was the second series is you know had the book that won the Locus Award for best novel and had two other nominations. So I mm-hmm. knowing that and not having read them, I expected that you know they continued getting bigger and better. They do, but it's sort of like the next generation version of the stories. Oh, is it sort of like the Bean stories in Ender's Game? Yes. Oh, well, those are crap. So, okay. (laughs) (laughs) First glove thrown. Uh, I wrote a really great story with a really great hero. Now I'm going to write a new book that says that the great hero that y'all love was a schmuck and everything was actually done by this minor character. (laughs) Yeah, okay. Meanwhile, I found this to be kind of derivative of Zelazny's own previous work. I don't want to say that I'm sorry we didn't read this first, but I kind of am, because right now it feels like Jack of Shadows meets Maker of Universes. The protagonist, or at least the main character, I don't see I don't even know if I can call him the hero. He he starts as this very brash person. Yes, he's lost his memory, but it comes back and flickers. And from the start, he sees himself as this faultless victim who doesn't see the need to apologize for anything. Well, and to be fair, I, when you have no memory of anything you've done, it's very yeah, easy to consider yourself without fault. <laughs> <laughs> he blackmailed the guy into taking him home or in, into calling him the cab from the clinic. And it just... Yeah. Yeah, they were criminally doping him. I mean, yeah, I, I you don't can't know. really blame him for that. He's being held against his oh, will no, I'm, and I'm just saying, you know, from, from the very start, it just goes in with a very brash attitude that, oh, so that's how it's going to be. I don't it know. Is, yeah, it, it is one of the things that the, the protagonist has this level of confidence and just competence as well. You have to either believe that's kind of inherent to the character or it's the author taking a liberty with the the reader, you know, in this case, is that really kind of more reflecting what Zelazny's wants his hero to be? Or is he really trying to make this in an innate sort of characteristic because he is kind of in a, a reflection of, I mean, Earth is a reflection of Amber and these rulers are, you know, people are reflections of them in a sense. And so, they should be somewhat of these ideals, whether it's confidence or competence. It can be hard to accept him as a protagonist, though. You're right, because of that. It's you know. hard to separate him from Jack of Jack of Shadows, too. Yes. A lot of the Especially same voice. once I, we get going. I think he has a lot of the same yeah. voice as Jack of Shadows. And it's interesting that you said that he sort of pulls from his... And I, it was Jack of Shadows before this, I assume, in terms of the, the timeline? But this is 1970, I think. Yeah, and it's funny because I always thought, not having read either, I always thought Jack of Shadows was part of the Amber series until we went to read it. And you said, no, Bob, this this is not part of the Amber series. <laughs> I'm like, whoopsie, Daisy. He's pulling a lot of the same threads, and you talk about 
maker of the universe, says the Philip Jose Farmer. I think in the foreword to the version that I read, as Lazny wrote that and directly attributing the Amber series to the maker of the universe because he took that idea and then made it into Amber, right? Which right. has its Five own years later. Its own things. Right, exactly. And well, he also heavily drew on Henry Cutner's The Dark World, and he admitted that as well. Yeah. Well, but I mean, yeah, I, I think but he, he drew it, on a lot of sources. So this is what the third fourth work of Zelazny's that we've reviewed on this show. And I think what I'm getting from this is that I can't even say with the exception of A Night in the Lonesome October. What I'm seeing is that pretty much throughout all of his works, he leans heavily on the cryptic overtones used in Eye of Cat, where everything is disseminated through dialogue and you're supposed to just catch on and pick up these associations as they happen. Yeah, and it, here I think he's trying to play around with both that as a style, but also inherent to this character's view of the world. The reader is never taken into another character's point of view, and he always has to refer to Corey's or Corwin's gaining memories along with the reader in some sense. I would say that, like you said, perhaps this one is is sort of like a culmination of that technique that if, if it's an introduction to Zelazny, it works a little bit better, right? than having seen this built in previous novels over and over, you know, through various that, approaches. That's a very fair point. Yeah. Yeah. And I think this was my introduction to Zelazny. It was, it was, it was definitely like the first Zelazny book that got me into some of his other books like Jack of Shadows and Lord of Light and, you know, Night of Lonesome October. It was, those were all secondary, even if they came before in terms of, you know, his contributions or his, his work as an author. Well, see, Eye of Cat was my first bit of Zelazny, and I always enjoyed that story. But Amber has, I mean, you could call it almost a cult-like following. I mean, even in high school, the people I knew that had read Amber had read it multiple times. I mean, it spawned three series, 14 novels, six short stories, two choose-your-own-adventure books, uh, one diceless role-playing game, two graphic novels, three different sets of 10 audiobooks, zines, and Amber Mush. And now they're developing an Amber series for Amazon Prime. Oh, jeez. Oh, wow. Yeah. Amber's really well-loved, and I think I understand why. I don't mind that it's one of those things where the story is doled out slowly in a cryptic fashion. I think that if every book I read constantly was that way, it would get really old. Um, I don't know if I'd be able to just sit down and read all 10 books of Amber back to back to back to back. I think it might be like reading Doc Savage. <laughs> but or even Sherlock. <laughs> spaced yeah. out, I enjoyed well, it, it's But it's also one of these things that you realize once you get to the end of this novel that it's not an encapsulated by right. itself. It, it is a book that is doesn't have an ending. Uh, it's it The Empire has- Strikes Back. Exactly. It is a to be continued, right? And so it's very much a, a novel that is set and embedded within a series, which makes it hard to sort of take on its own. And it makes it difficult for people who just want to say, I want to read this novel without having to load themselves down with the other at least four books, right? In terms yeah, of the first I mean, I got to the end. It said, Eric, I'll be back. And it was signed Corbin, Lord of Amber. And all I could think of was dun dun dun. <laughs> <laughs> it is one of those like, it's a 
reiteration of the hero's quest in this sense the hero doesn't realize he's an actual hero you know we've seen that before in farmer's books but it 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 is sort of the same themes of him finding his strengths going through these trials the whole durance that he he goes through in the series is one of those things that you can see echoed in anything from game of thrones nowadays you know where it's sort of commonplace to see that sort of thing but at the time it was really captivating to say you could do this to the hero and blind him and and make him the subject of his his brothers you know sort of what draws i think people to it in some ways is this idea of like a very game of thrones sort of richness to the characters and their intrigue and their values you know and i think george r R. martin was a close friend to zelazny's you know in terms of he lived with him or lived you know near him and was obviously heavily influenced and you can see this being sort of a seed for that type of storytelling which like you said is very popular certainly today but at the time it, amber was that it was the the game of well, that, the when zelazny did it'd be like 150 200 pages five books now that's a george R. R. martin book <laughs> right <laughs> oh look a thousand pages done done i will say <laughs> um snark aside i will say the psychological aspect of this tale was kind of interesting because amber almost seems to be a state of being besides just being a physical place yeah Yeah. it and it's their will that generates the place that they're in in some ways and the place that they are in conforms to that will which is this really intriguing sort of idea that it's the reverse of the makers of the universe that they are making the worlds they enter into that sort of shape themselves around them and so it's not like the earth is a standalone separate place it is created by the will of these people in some ways right unconsciously or consciously because everything is at its source amber oh don't forget ribma right yeah (laughs) and if you're dwelling among the shadows you are living outside of amber I was like, okay, those are some things I could really appreciate. Just like little touches, like the random clothing change as they passed into the new scenery. He looks down and all of a sudden, oh, I'm wearing this instead. And I've got sparkly pants. You know, there's the (laughs) trick of eating underwater that, you know, I'll go into detail and tell you later if it ever becomes necessary. But Mm -hmm. the underwater area was nothing like say del rey's version of atlantis so i i thought that was kind of neat too just the different takes on the settings yeah besides the psychological feeling of it yeah and and that whole idea is as you journey there are these incredibly powerful beings in some sense but they are also limited by some mechanical rules some inheritance that they do not control the full reality you know that they're sort of a secondary generation from their father and those that came before them So where they have to sort of abide by these pathways. When Random takes Corwin back to Amber, it's a very circuitous route that they travel through many worlds just to sort of tack their way towards it, which I I found really interesting. You know, the idea that you have to go in the opposite direction to get to where you're going and you do meet these sort of like changes as you go through that. Because they took the hard way too. I mean, yeah. Yeah. Well, because otherwise they'd be going right up to the front step where the enemy brother holds the land, and that seems well. Traveling just to Amber without brutal. the Trumps was at the beginning was thought to be impossible, right? And they traveled there without the Trumps. I mean, they really took the hard way through. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Speaking of the Trumps, should we uh, move on to things to stat? I got things to stat. <laughs> <laughs> 
I mean, without giving away the entire series, which I, I'm sure we could talk Mark into doing. Oh, yes, please. <laughs> <laughs> well, right off the bat, I thought that the royal family of Amber, Corwin and and everybody else could be great as like NPC faction heads, or you could even make them as patrons. I mean, technically speaking, Merlin is Corwin's son. We've done a write up of Merlin as a patron. So I guess technically we could tie this into the shadow people, which, you know, <laughs> if, if you're not an Amber, you're in shadow. So, Hey, I get it now. I, uh, that explains why I felt like I was going through the sign of the Labyrinth and some of that. Yeah. yeah see, <laughs> but they would be very interesting, especially, you know, as they're stronger, they have individual abilities. I thought, they'd be fun just a mundane dog whistle nobody's ever actually written up something like that for dcc so besides you know ordering dogs around what else could hear a dog whistle it might be fun to, to create a dog whistle give it to someone with like a war dog and then three adventures later run into something that hears in the ultrasonic and knows they're coming and is is really pissed off about it mm. <laughs> There were uh, the weirs, the amber werewolves. Speaking I of the dog whistle. Yeah, I thought they might be kind of uh, fun to do a little bit of a different take on the classic werewolf. And yeah, you know, dog whistles probably pissed them off. But just the way they changed so suddenly and they were so beastial to begin with. In most werewolf literature, the werewolf is uh, kind of a tragic figure. They're the nice guy who got bit and, and things have changed. And those guys... They reminded me of the Huntsman of Anuvan out of I uh, see that. Mm-hmm. And then because they were using things like rapiers, sabers, small swords, court swords, it would be kind of fun to come up with a combat mechanic involving small swords and court swords because fencing of that nature is different from hacking somebody with a short sword or a long sword where, yeah, there's an edge, but you're really just trying to bludgeon them with whatever you hit them with as opposed to you know, point work and, and trapping blades and kora kora. I was already giving that a little bit of thought just because you could have something that's not overly complex that allows you to build. Maybe it'd be a class, maybe it'd just be a, a weapon system, I don't know. But uh, but that really tickled my fancy. Yeah, the, the thought that kind of immediately comes to mind, to my mind, is, is one implementation is a set of mighty deeds that are focused on small and court swords. You could expand sort of like the standard mighty deeds that are examples. Well, certainly, because the there are weapon-specific deeds. I hadn't yeah. even... Right. I haven't even gone in that route. I was thinking, you know, maybe if you pick up a small sword, because a small sword is is about the blade's about as long as your forearm. It's like it's like a a long dirk, but it's really slender. Okay, so you attack with a d sixteen, but then you add your level to your roll. So as long as you don't get a natural one, you're in good shape. And okay, so your rolls are going to be getting better and better by the time you're fifth level. You're going to be doing better, and you know, I don't know. I really like that idea of the Mighty Deed because it kind of steps in place of requiring a weapon proficiency or or maybe blend the two. I was kind of looking at it as a, as a different style of fighting like two-handed fighting is. Uh, I've got to give it some thought, but especially if you tune in to like the, uh, the 1970s Three Musketeers and Four Musketeers, where you see probably some of the best fine fencing blade work you're going to see on screen you <laughs> besides get kind the of olympics idea. yeah <laughs> no because because olympic fencing is competition fencing and competition fencing is dull uh <laughs> it really is unless you're the one <laughs> I doing suppose. the fencing yeah 
but when you, when you see what that can be and how elegant and, and how flamboyant, yeah, it, it needs something. It needs to be addressed. But but those are my thoughts. What Very about cool. you, Jen? Well, of course, I'm interested in Rebma, the ghost city, which, of course, is the reverse of amber, even in spelling. And, you know, Bob, you mentioned the amber mush earlier. I almost want to check it out to see if they've done anything with Rebma. And uh, maybe we could pull something of that over for DCC. <laughs> of course, the, the Trump, the tarot, the stats of those cards in and of themselves would be really interesting. But the tarot deck is something very special and magical in and of itself. And those stats, those have got to change when cards are missing. And there's got to be some sort of corruption or something involved in there. I still like playing 52-card pickup with it. (laughs) (laughs) Or 72-card, I guess, really. Yeah, yeah. That was awesome. (laughs) And... And of course, my favorite part of the book in its entirety was Dworkin and his sketches. Yes. So at least the ability that Dworkin had to create a sketch or create a new Trump and then walk through it. That was just fascinating. And it it was right up there with Zelazny's common trope, if you will, of all mirrors being magic. Mm, that's really neat, yeah. I, I really like that. I've got seniority. I'm Oberon's prisoner. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you mentioned Redma nice. in, the, in just as a note of foreshadowing. There is another city reflected in the sky called Tirnanag, which is a true ghost city, which has its own sort of like rules and parts of it. it well, yeah, it's the fairy hill. <laughs> I mean, so, basically. <laughs> yeah, it goes into a whole nother context in terms of, you know, what you mentioned when you're talking about the aspects of Redma that you could bring to a statting or place. It's it's kind of very friendly to an adventure. Um, mine sort of went down the route and thoughts of there's a lot of monsters that I think Zelazny pulls that have a they have they have some elements of traditional fantasy, but like I think all of Zelazny is trying to make amber sort of the true origin of it and so there's an idea that these creatures are sort of the unique versions of them sort of like my my thought like this is the dcc monster version of like the manticora and the julian's hound morgenstern or morgenstein which i thought was just a very cool sort of creature to sort of stat up as a warhorse you know in terms of what unique flavor characteristics can you give a named creature like that you know in terms of the dcc dealing of every creature should have a name. Taking that warhorse that's in the DCC stat book and making the Morgenstern or Morgenstein version of it. I thought that would be kind of a cool thing. And his hounds too. I mean, you, I mean, those, those hounds are just very flavorful in terms of their pursuit and their obedience and just the terrifying nature of them. They're taking well, down- His hounds taking down and Flora's hounds. I right. mean, Flora's oh, yeah, hounds are true. pretty scary too. Yeah, and they have a physicality or realness to them that makes them- their menace to me seems a little more actual than sort of fantastical. And I, I yeah, still like they, that element. They kind of felt like the hounds in the, uh, the King of Elfland's daughter. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Um, I really like the, I think they're the furry little guys like that he described as like high school kids, you know, that uh, he recruited <laughs> for his army. 
And, oh, the, they, the cat people, the hairless yeah, cat people, the mostly they, hairless cat people. <laughs> but they were just smart enough to get get them some guns, and and they had a you know un, unbending loyalty, just like high school kids. It, it just he he throws in and peppers in things like that into sort of reiterate his military training and background. Yeah, but I like the idea of you know statting up those creatures with you know give them automatic weapons, you know give them some sort of fantastical thing that maybe it doesn't work in a traditional medieval fantasy land like it doesn't work in the true amber but if there's a way to get it to work if you can figure out you know some way of doing that then it becomes this sort of mashup of you know mcc slash dcc worlds and i like that idea of just portability of, of his creatures or, or you kill them horribly because they're going to work <laughs> you take their guns you end up on the purple planet and the next time you look down the barrel it goes off and takes off your head that would be very mcc or metamorphosis alpha <laughs> yeah <laughs> i was really intrigued by the idea of, and, and just because been dealing a lot with curses recently is the idea of the death curse of an amberite right so this uh, this ability that's described and you see it come true in corwin's case when he's blinded he thinks he's about to be put to death or at least put to death in a sense where he's never going to see release and his curse is terrifying you know it's not ever specified what it is, but it becomes evident at the end of the book that his curse has manifested itself in some way. And just the power of that curse, the power of these beings, you're a very powerful being, not a witch, this curse, but there is a very powerful being in the setting that had this ability or this became some type of quest for it in a way to solve. Um, I, I just really it was intrigued by that. The narrative sense of it, was, it's just a very good storytelling element, but just it could make a very good role playing element as well. Nice. And then finally, the pattern itself. I mean, the pattern is sort of like Dworkin's trump for Eugen. It's just this enigma that is tied to these beings, but also represents, you know, its own magic in some way. It's a rune that's creating the world, right? That the rest of the world is sort of generated out from the pattern because the true pattern in amber is sort of reflected in Redma and it's reflected in, you know, in later series in the in Tir Nanog. And for me, when I was kind of reading this the second time, or the, not the second time, but this, this time for the podcast, it's almost like that artist's signature evidence mm. in the paintings like you can see like doug kovacs's backward z or his his little signature that's that you can see there it becomes it becomes this like cornerstone in a way of a piece but blended in so well that it's the version of that piece that is true and and it makes it real you know makes it that artist piece and i just really like the idea of the pattern as a tool that your characters can come across in some way it becomes a pathway or an adventure hook in itself and maybe they have the ability to traverse the pattern or maybe they find some connection to it that connects them to a larger story you know those those type of role-playing things where it's not amnesia and you find yourself the hero but you find you know sort of the azure bonds type implications of of the things you're seeing and so that that idea and that's the pattern's ability that once you get to the end of it you can transport yourself anywhere and any place across multiverses it's just sort of this uniqueness of that power which is you know in itself a very powerful tool that you can lay into in a, a, a setting or an adventure so i, I kind of like statting that up as well that's deep <laughs> nicely philosophical too yeah my brain hurts trying to think of a way to stat that up it's almost more of a like a setting 
Yeah, I think it does lend itself more to that. You could make it somewhat of a spell, but a setting makes a lot of sense. And then yeah, you setting could still or a alter mechanic it. piece. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. Okay, all very good ideas for things to stat. As we move over to props and audio, I'm going to be a, a little bit bland for most of our listeners here. Hey guys, both times that I was reading and or listening to this book, my background was thunderstorms. Welcome to Florida. <laughs> and I will say there was never not a time when thunderstorms were not the background piece for this book. <laughs> <laughs> and the time in the cell, that was perfect. For props, I would place a couple of books of matches and maybe a sharpened object that is not readily obvious as a knife to recreate Dworkin sketching. Place those out on the table, see what somebody comes up with. And hey, bonus points if you force someone to waste an extra match just so you have the time to sign it. <laughs> we like to call that Dworkin's dick move. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, it, it's the Kovacs upside down backwards Z, or number two. It's the only thing that really that makes one. it work. Yeah. Right. It's not a true piece until it's signed. And I, I kind of like the idea of just having the players create something with some odd objects that you wouldn't normally use for creating a sketch. Or, you know, you could even be nice and give them a pencil and a pad of paper, but light the matches. And that's the amount of time that you have to create the setting that you are trying to draw. Very so. cool. I, I like that idea. And how about you? I struggled with this a bit because, you know, there, I think there's some things about the story that I, I want to say are evident of the time. It's a very, you know, chauvinistic story in some ways. Uh, the sisters are, are somewhat brushed aside almost in, inconsequentially. They have their own sort of motivations. Because it's but not nine princes and four princesses of Amber. Yeah. Exactly. And mm -hmm. none of them none of them are vying for the throne. It's never, well, one of them could be the queen well, of Amber or the king of Amber. Although I think one of them said, uh, no, I'm not going up against Eric. No, just no. Right. You shouldn't either. Just no. Right. It, it almost lends itself to, I don't want to say retro versioning your playing environment, but man, Get a pot of coffee and big steak, and <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> and and Put maybe some on and maybe some cigarettes or candy cigarettes if that's your thing, and get out that shag carpeting if you want to, if you want to go down that route. But it it, it, it well, has you know, like, there are black light posters now for DCC. And <laughs> it's true, but yeah, but it just it just has a very sort of like in its time sort of context. Like it is not a timeless piece. There are just a lot of aspects of Corwin that are very noir of the 70s, you know, sort of French connection sort of version of the storytelling that come across. And if you want to recreate that in your own gaming environment, then I think this is there's some tools in here that you can draw from to make it feel more like a den of what might be passing for the time than what you have now. That's just that's one idea. I think the, the other thing that sort of leaped out of me are these the jewel of judgment is one of these kind of great artifact pieces that you don't really see a whole lot of in this first novel but has its own context and sort of characteristics that are 
detailed out later. But just having that jewel of judgment as this sort of coveted item, and it, that's sort of like a heavy prop that you could get for your players to handle or to wear even. In later books, you find out that it actually has a contravening sort of aspects in terms of its drawing the strength of the user in order to use its abilities, which could make for kind of a nice role-playing aspect as well. But those are kind of a couple of thoughts I had. Uh, what about you, Bob? Obviously, you need a really cool tarot deck. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> um, if you can find one, there was the Tarot d'Amber, the Amber Tarot by Florence Magnan. And if, if you want an Amber Tarot deck, it's, it's a must. They're just drop-dead sexy, gorgeous cards. They're beautiful they're they're the colors are really rich i mean i could wax poetic about them but uh they're also very rare so uh, if you can find one expect to pay at least 200 bucks for a card or a deck for the deck okay Uh, the last the last time one of them came up for sale was in uh 2016 and it went for 215 bucks wow yeah now they also another company took the entire spread and made a jigsaw puzzle. And that is slightly mm-hmm. easier to find, as in there was one for sale in France when I was writing my show notes. Uh, so there's that. Um, but understandably, not everybody wants or can spend 200 bucks on a tarot deck. But if you go to Etsy, there's some great tarot decks there at reasonable prices. And I was kind of partial to the Deck of the Bastard, which was kind of a vintage-looking deck. There was the Deviant Moon, which was filled with, like, creepy puppet doll things. With, hey, like, David Beatty! Four to six <laughs> arms each. <laughs> there was the Gothic Tarot, which was made of lots of old, like, uh, woodcuts of skeletons. Mm-hmm. Or, oh, hey, that would fit our theme. Yeah, or you could even just put something together yourself and do a custom print of a tarot deck via drive-thru because drive-thru cards can do tarot decks oh very cool yes so prop wise that's really what i focus on because with amber at least with this first book it's all about the tarot deck yeah that'd be kind of cool that if you could somehow the creative judge and the characters are recreated in tarot form and the players come across that in a gamey setting and there's a mystery there you know in terms of if how that... you have players that like to draw character portraits. exactly yeah and mm-hmm. we used to we used to have a player who Drew a lot of different character portraits. She moved, yeah. And then music-wise, the beginning of the book in Shadow Earth, New York, it's very noir. Harlem Nocturne. People of my generation know it as the theme from the Mike Hammer series. Um, (laughs) It was written written for and by the Ray Noble Orchestra in the 30s, but the 1960s cover by the Viscounts just just hits it for me and i mean it's it's the classic version and if you can find another viscount recordings uh they did let's see their songs the touch night train night flight they did a wailing sax version of summertime Mm -hmm. i cover the waterfront all of those are just perfect for that kind of gritty almost black and white noir feel of shadow new york other music from the areas kind of hit or miss but you could put the eight minute version of harlem nocturne on repeat and just go and then once you get to amber proper especially once corwin's talking about well you know in the napoleonic war i took this injury and, and then there, you know i was fighting with the romans and this happened i was like well Right then. So you get to Amber, and what you need to put on is you need to put on Queen's It's a Kind of Magic, because it has Princes of the Universe. Because <laughs> uh, really, when he starts rattling up, I'm like, 
it's it's Highlander. Uh, <laughs> he, he's incredibly strong. He can't die. He's been fighting forever. Yeah. Um. His Corwin McLeod of the Clan McLeod, and uh, he, is, <laughs> he is an Amber Immortal. But in seriousness, Princess of the Universe, great song, powerful. It would be wonderful for that moment of uh, of awakening in Amber, of that that epiphany mm-hmm. when when he finally remembers truly who he is. Those were those were my uh, my music ideas. That's great. Yeah. So. Track our old road music. Uh, that was like our old party music. Um, okay. <laughs> and our race, say, race the sun home music. <laughs> and yeah. Yeah, pretty much. Well, I know that you guys have been touching on, well, hey, if there was this, we could do this. And I know that some of you have some things in your show notes. So uh, let's uh, move on over to the existing. DCC inspirations and uh, which mods would you use to reskin with the theme of this book? We'll start with Mark. So I, I think this is probably a common connection that we all made, but Brides of the Black Mance is totally something you could take and replace with some of the Lords of Amber and the players and that sort of machinating family. It's a great adventure, you know. It's one of the ones that I, I think is designed to be a actual four-hour adventure. So it has this sort of like unique, oh yeah, you know, unique characteristic about it that puts a lot of weight on the judge, but not just the judge, but the players. And I would love to see sort of the reskinning that takes place in Castle Amber or takes place in a similar sort of vein. And you could bring in elements of the party themselves are not just related to these indirectly, but maybe directly related or part of this, uh, this tableau. And so I, I, I really enjoyed that aspect that, you know, whether it was an influence on Harley Stroh when he was writing it or not, it's, it's, you know, it clearly has a lot of commonality, you know, in terms of the tarot, in terms of the depictions of the individuals. In the books, of course, you know, there's these, like Bob said, these are all NPCs that are kind of read, like ready made because they're, they're individualized enough for you to do that. The other one that came to mind, and, and this is not a DCC one, but there is the old a Castle Amber module for Dungeons and Dragons. You know, that was... Mm. Uh, Although when I was reading about that, and it sounds like it's more Clark Ashton Smith than Zelazny. It, it is, and I played through it actually uh, maybe about... 10 years ago, I think I had a, somebody take me through it as a campaign, sort of not knowing that we were going to be playing that. It was just, you know, we were suddenly in this place. We had to sort of puzzle out. But I'd, I'd always heard of the module, but never really mm-hmm. played it before. It, it is an early D&D module that has, you know, elements that's drawn from Clark Tesson Smith. It's drawn from some of the Amber novels. You know, it, I think the, the Clark Tesson Smith is because of the land itself is sort of one of the uh, you know, the fantasy land that Clark Ashton Smith writes about in, in many of his short stories that he returns to uh, over and over again. Well, like Maker of Gargoyles, yeah. Yeah, it, it's one of those that is probably for the community that's interested in DCC reskins and especially not just the standard sort of DCC modules that are out there. That's a good source to go to and say, that's a pretty gonzo adventure in, in some ways. It's kind of, you know, written in that same kind of context as some of the other gonzo adventures of the, of the time, but it's also a kooky adventure. It's meant to be, 
you know, somewhat deadly in some cases. So I, I think it's one of those that would be great if somebody took that and made a version of it for DCC that took on elements of the Amber stories or emphasized them or just utilized what was there and kind of brought that forward um, in the context of DCC. So I think that those those are two that, that kind of came to mind, you know, that had direct sort of reskin possibilities. That's actually a really cool idea. Bob, how about you? Well, I mean, right off the bat, I was thinking about the travel methods. Uh, you know, the way they travel to Amber could easily be used to bridge your characters to or from, like, the Purple Planet or any other setting. Kind of struck me as an automotive version of Ningobble's Cave. Mm. And really, then, you could just replace the cave with, you know, that's now a hex map. Mm-hmm. And these oh, are the routes cool, yeah. to the different worlds. And, and you're set. And I mean, there you are. find the pattern from there. Right. You're traveling the pattern. Mm-hmm. And you could use that, you know, connecting things pretty easily. The cat-like troops of Avernus did put me of a mind of uh, Clipcario's Gambit. Just <laughs> because of the big you know, cat guy in the front. I, well, yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> but with with a little bit of change, you really could make maybe that, a little shorter. Well, you replace most of the other creatures with smaller versions that are you know the seven foot tall, near hairless guys, and change that module's uh, primary setting to like a stronghold of these things. And there you are. Now you've got a stronghold in Avernus with very little change. Just toss the story out, and you're good to go. If you want to add the actual Terra on the pattern, it would give a whole new campaign depth to fate's fell hand mm, you know, yeah there's already cards involved in that well now if you add the amber That's tarot right. and you add the pattern and there's actually keep in mind you can now buy the fate's fell hand cards now and the new edition has the colorized version of the cards mm-hmm. yeah which i think is what was used to make the actual cards Probably. i think it was i think the cards were done by uh, the people that do dcc in spain not Brazil, oh, but in Spain. Oh, that could be, yeah. The I, I think easily did the coloration on the the Goodman product, right? And then, yeah, and so, that's the one with the vintage cover. Yeah, and so that yeah. would be that'd be kind of fun to play around with and talk about you know, going from one extreme to another. You could take the Lankmar Adventure Madhouse Meet, which is certainly as far away from Amber as you can really get. <laughs> and strip everything away and start in that dungeon sequence. And rather than the small madhouse, you know, you've got the very first of the rooms around the dungeons as they emerge from beneath Castle Amber. And you could just build out from there, starting with Madhouse Meat as as your basis. Mm-hmm. You know, do away with the bars and just make it prison doors, and you'd be good to go. You could easily with that adventure, start a campaign through Castle Amber. Very cool. Oh, yeah. All, all it would take is Dworkin sketching a different cell and putting you there. Well, that too. <laughs> what about you, Jen? The very first one, I'm right there with Mark, that family tree from Bride of the Black Mance. Oh, yeah. The PCs could totally take on as, as avatars of those personalities. And... Oddly enough, there was the sequence on the sea where they were crashing to the rocks that brought Beyond the Black Gate and Shadow Under Devil's Reef to mind. And while you could also blend those adventures in, it really just enhances my desire to blend all of this into the Swordfish Islands, which could then become part of the pattern of getting to or from 
the worlds that you're trying to put your characters in. But I am actually pretty excited for the feature of the show, so I'm just going to move right into that. Besides the reskins and whatnot, Nowhere City Nights by Judge Julian Burnick. It is a modern noir setting, which is absolutely perfect. Nowhere City had a better name once, but no one calls it that anymore. It's part of a bigger nation. Or, it once was. But those old power structures are mostly forgotten. Local corporate overlords rule the day, and violent gangsters rule the night. The police are an army that serves both of those masters, depending on the neighborhood, and the night, and the sack of cash. The working people of Nowhere City pray that they can live their lives in peace and anonymity without attracting the attention of the city's masters, or worse. Behind that bald-faced municipal graft and the corporate corruption, even worse things lurk. Factions battle each other in the never-ending underground occult war that some call the Shadow Conflict. Sorcerer cults have turned their back on what's left of civilization in order to serve the extra-dimensional Veiled Ones. Cadres of gutter knights are dedicated to exterminating those cultists at any cost. And the slick, unscrupulous free agents will go anywhere, kill anyone take anything for a price so remember earlier in the show we were talking about hey if only there was like this noir thing we could blend this in with i have to say as as third-party products go this is definitely less ur hadad and more appendix n it really does have the feel of a lot of the different sources pulled into this. The veiled ones themselves could be the creators of the pattern. Well, and Nowhere City Nights is the perfect setting for the pre-amber portion of the story. Corrupt doctors, noir-style streets, guns, dames, dogs. Hmm. Um, It feels like you could just drop the maps from this world and any given fantasy world into Photoshop and sort of fade them together and have amber. Nice. And... (laughs) And it just, it really works. It would be a great way to start rather than, I mean, we're kind of used to the adventures that, like, you know, not in Kansas anymore, which is a great adventure by Dieter Zimmerman, where you're from the 70s and now you're in a fantasy world. Well, instead, you're, you could be starting in this corrupt, already magical, noir, sort of a cast a deadly spell sort of world. And then, you know, half the adventure there and then half the adventure, you know, Awakened. And let's face it, Random is totally a gutter night. There is, he is such a gutter night. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's a great setting. We got to play this uh, with Julian running it at Gamehole Con a couple years ago and loved the setting. And it really kind of gives you that black and white vibe. Yeah, I really like that idea of transferring between, you know, starting with the setting and then transferring to something else or even alternating between them. This, the setting is, is a gateway and you go back to some medieval fantasy version of it that's more like the amber, but you have to keep traveling back and forth and, and encountering some of the same foes. And I, I mean, that kind of brings me, there's like a Piers Anthony set of novels of the, what are the juxtaposition series that where it's like a very oh, sort yeah. of like flanks and flux. Yeah. Like it's like a very sort of like futuristic sort of noir 
ish setting, but then the protagonist has like alternate selves in the fantasy world. And I could see that being what you're talking about, Bob, is what that just let, let my mind to. It sounded, it sounded kind of like a fun way of doing a, a campaign and basing it off of nowhere, nowhere City Nights. Well, yeah. I mean, sort of the classic way that as you're traveling back and forth to Amber, you know, your clothing changes, so your equipment changes. So your light crossbow might become a snub nose 38. Right. <laughs> and, you know, your clothes change. And I think I think that could be a lot of fun. Yeah. In the spirit of not spoiling everything, we have a couple of intro pages to the three classes that Julian gives us. And you mentioned random totally being a gutter knight. And basically, yeah, you, you've screwed up in the past, but that's not you anymore. Your name is already lost. Only the shadow of the habits that destroyed you remain that and your purpose. You will never be known, you will never be thanked, you will never have glory. Wow, that, okay, that's a little dark. <laughs> but then there, there's the sorcerers, you know, if you learn their language, the veiled ones will speak to you. If you do their bidding, the veiled ones will give you a tiny measure of their power. Even if it seals the fate of every living thing in reality, you can master the last secret and make its power your own. And then you have the free agents. Let the fools fight over shadows. It's all about you. You know, <laughs> they introduced new mechanics. You've got vices, virtues, and vendettas. Those would fit in Amber better than most Appendix and City settings, especially if you go back to that original thought of Amber being just as much an idea as a physical place. Yeah. And I love the idea of having characters in each place, having regular DCC characters, and then having characters drawn up from Nowhere City Nights that are avatars of each other. Yeah. And so maybe two games in a row, you play in the DCC setting, and then you're back in the modern noir. I just thought of something I want to stat or I want to write up. Of course you did. Well, yeah, because we're talking about starting in, in Newer City Nights and Travel to Amber and the way things change. So you're probably familiar with it by sight, maybe not by name, but there's a 1942 painting called Nighthawks. It's the very famous diner painting at night. Mm. Mm -hmm. Okay. So yes. I, I, which, and the <laughs> name of the place is, is, is Phillies. And now I want to write up Phillies because you don't meet in a tavern, you meet at the local diner. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, Phillies, Phillies has to be written up as a Nowhere City Nice location. Yes. Yes, that, that must happen. <laughs> nice. Oh God, yes. <laughs> and just a couple of shout outs for last year's Gong Farmer's Almanac. There's a new Nowhere City Nights class in that by Stephen Bean, mm. who also, you know, did a lot of the work on the, the version of Nowhere City Nights that Jillian put together or, or created. Uh, right. And didn't the new adventure from Steve Bean just come out around Gen Con? I think so. I don't remember the name of that. He's, yeah, he, I know he, for the Gong Farmers last year, he did a, the new class and he did new rules for Nowhere City Nights for detective work. So if you're looking for, for more. But yeah, definitely good stuff. And I love the fact that there's more coming. So um, yeah, Julian, good stuff. Keep it coming from yourself as well and uh this i mentioned this is third party so it's not just all part of our little goodman family uh this is published by order of the quill 
which also brought you the lovely Theater of the Hand. Ta-da! <laughs> dun, dun, dun. Yeah, so, yes, definitely sharing the love, and man, this is perfect. Mm-hmm. I, I wasn't sure at first, I will admit, but then I started reading it again, and y- yeah, yeah, okay. Yep, perfect. So thanks again, Julian, for some excellent work, and I'm super happy to see this being built on. Mm-hmm. So I suppose that takes us to our little show addendum. Uh, Bob, why don't you get us started on some road crew shoutouts? Because there's no prize closet of mystery. John Hammersley is running an open table exploration of Hot Springs Island, merging Uh DCC with the Swordfish Island setting every other Sunday afternoon at 1 p.m. at the game night in Huntingburg, Indiana. Next game date for our listeners will be September 16th. So jealous. Our friend Jeff Bernstein is running Man Bait for the Soul Stealer this coming Saturday, September 8th at 9.30 in the morning for Chicago Game Day 49. It'll be held at Games Plus in Mount Prospect. And as a reminder, he's also running open DCC tables every Monday evening, I believe. Might be every other. Check with Games Plus. Or check with Jeff Bernstein. Yeah, that too. M. Nixick is running DCC Funnels from 2 to 6 p.m. every Saturday at Tacoma Games in Tacoma, Washington. Michael Bolam, friend of the show, is running an open table at Phantom of the Attic Games in Pittsburgh, PA. Gotta love Pennsylvania. On Sunday, September 23rd at noon, most likely he will be running Man Bait for the Soul Stealer. I think that TPK'd my party on Free RPG Day. <laughs> <laughs> Michael Bolum, not only friend of the show, but also DCC attorney judge extraordinaire. Yes. <laughs> and Northern Indiana gets the best of both worlds as Judge Joan of Arc Troyer and Marlene Whitmer trade off running open tables for DCC every Thursday night from 6 to 10 at Better World Books in Goshen, Indiana, and Saturdays at Secret Door Games in Elkhart. You can enjoy lower-level play with Joan or explore the Purple Planet with Marlene. Nice. Mike Carlson is running Open Table DCC Games on the second and fourth Mondays of the month at Everybody Reads Books and Stuff in Lansing, Michigan. Games start at 6.30. Yeah, every time I hear that store's name, I wonder what the stuff that people... (laughs) Maybe magazines. Oh, okay. And zines. Zines. Yes. Stuff. Tim Lawchrist is running DCC at Blank Comics in Florence, Alabama, every other Sunday. The next game should be held on September 9th. Check with the store for details. Christian Bird is hosting a regular open game on Tuesdays at the Beer Temple in Chicago. Sounds like the place to be. (laughs) Contest winner Mario Garcia runs a weekly DCC game on Thursday evenings at Funnigan Games in Eugene, Oregon. Friend of the show and fairly recent DCC convert, Corey Welch, will be running Hmm. the zero-level funnel They Served Brandolin Red at Miskatonic Brewing Company in Darien, Illinois, on Saturday, September 29th at 3 p.m. I need beer from Miskatonic Brewing Company. Yeah, yeah, we do. Oh, my God. (laughs) 
A Category 5 hurricane couldn't stop the first one, so it's safe to say that the second annual Brinkmanomicon is happening Columbus Day weekend in Naples, Florida. We'll be featuring DCC Lankmar, Skull and Crossbones Classics, Pyramid Crawl Classics, Metamorphosis Alpha. Uh, rumor has it that Gaslands will be paired with Umerica and Crawling Under a Broken Moon. And old and rare systems have surfaced in the past, like Bushido, Traveler, and Chill. Cyber Commando. If you're interested in attending, you've probably already contacted Bob or myself. Game registration has gone live for Gamehole Con happening in Madison, Wisconsin this November 8th through 11th. As of this recording, there are a few DCC tickets remaining. And a quick reminder, game submissions for GaryCon have opened up. Uh, so it's time to start flooding Luke Gygax's <laughs> email with DCC game requests. To be fair, I think they go to Skip Williams, but yeah, same same idea. Or send them all to Taco, John Hirschberger, if you <laughs> want to be under the Goodman Games banner. Very true. Now, are you running Road Crew Games? Drop us a line at thehub at sanctum.media to let us know. Even better, join the Guardians of Secrets. Send us your upcoming events for inclusion, and once you've submitted a few successfully run events, you'll be inducted into the roles of the Guardians of Secrets, able to enter your events directly onto the calendar. Members will periodically receive exclusive items for their tables, such as the free RPG Day companions that we've put out, and some other secret benefits. If you're listening and looking for a game, go to sanctum.media and click on the community events link and be sure to scroll all the way down for full venue and host judge info. Fellow readers, we would love to see what sort of things you've created based on your appendix and rating. Keep an eye and an ear out for future topics and we can include your material in the show companion, the DCC community's only free monthly e-zine. Remember, we have quite a few things in our prize closet. Even though it's not a prize closet of mystery anymore. No, it's still a prize closet of mystery. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, In return for contributions, we have zines, modules, and even some great Appendix N. Submit your creations to us. Again, that's the hub at sanctum.media. In the meantime, if you are enjoying the show, drop us an email, comment on the podcast, chime in on our G Plus page, or help us by posting a review on iTunes. Those ratings and reviews help new listeners find the podcast. And hello to our new fans from Gen Con. Hello! Hello! Be sure to visit us on Google Plus, mention us on Facebook, ignore us on Ello. Ignore us on Ello! Uh, we hope we've inspired you for something. <laughs> <laughs> to me, Ello is like Hobbes to Julian. <laughs> so true. And uh, you'll notice Hobbes didn't write anything that we featured, right? Right? Hobbes, right? Yeah. You Start lazy writing. bum. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> we do hope we've inspired you. Thanks for listening. Good night. Be inspired. You have been listening to the Sanctum Socorum Podcast. (laughs) 
join us again next time as the Sanctum explores its wild side with the Circle of Lights, Grayfax Grimwald. The Sanctum Socorum Podcast has been a production of Sanctum Media. Copyright 2018. I'm bored. Me too. This 24th level dark elf barbarian assassin is lame. Hey, want excitement? I do. Want adventure? Yeah! Then just open up a vein and pray to the Dark Master! Burn some luck and roll a die. Now you're ready to listen to Spellburn! Welcome to Spellburn, a podcast about the Dungeon Crawl Classics role-playing game and old-school adventuring. Join the band and party like it's 1974. Hey guys, can I play? Sure! Sure! Check us out at Spellburn.com or wherever fine iTunes are served. Oh, cool. I summoned a demon horde.